Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode 250. Thank you. Yeah, we made it. <sighs> made it to a quarter of the way to a thousand. Exactly. And what better way to celebrate 250 episodes than doing a live podcast recording? Exactly. Yeah. And what better person than Courtney Carver herself? Uh, exactly. Courtney, the queen herself. Exactly. <laughs> Recorded in Salt Lake City on a very quick flyover trip that you did while we were in LA. You shot off to Salt Lake City. I did. And... You recorded this. What was the bookstore? It's called the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City. Uh, yeah, so this was one of the only times actually where I had to kind of leave you guys behind mm. and head off on a plane to make schedules work. But so grateful for it. A, because I've always wanted to go to Salt Lake City. Yeah. And the bit that I saw, I really, really loved. You liked it. I loved it yeah. a lot. I, I'm a sucker for a city with mountains and yeah. I don't know, I like the pace of it and it seemed... Uh, I don't know, maybe it's because we'd been in LA and we'd tackled sort of the LA traffic a few times. Yeah, and big city life. Was Yeah, it had been the first time we'd been in a big city for a yeah. while and then to go into Salt Lake was, was a beautiful respite actually. Yeah, wonderful. So Utah in itself, because we actually drove through Utah later on in the tour. We did. And it's it's stunning. <sighs> it, has the, it has the... Something about the landscape of Utah and Arizona is just reminds me of all the cowboy movies. But it is just there's so much space there. I never realised there were. It was just vista after vista. Well, we kept coming around the corner and going, "Whoa!" Yeah. And there was one day where we just kept pulling off the road to mm. stop and take photos and just kind of breathe it all in. It was it was genuinely phenomenal. I had no. Uh, expectations of that part of the world because I really didn't know a huge amount about it other than Salt Lake City has good ski fields nearby. Like that's yeah. kind of all I knew Same. of Utah. Yeah. And to drive through that was on – we're on our way to Colorado. So it was through the LA. bottom half of Utah. It was just phenomenal. So our guest, Courtney Carver, yes. legend. Yes. So, and she's appeared on the podcast before back in episode 10 and 209. So they'll be linked in the show notes to this episode slash 250. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what did you discuss? Uh, well, first, it was just awesome to hang out with Courtney because I have been working with her in some capacity for four or five years and we've shared, you know, numerous emails. We have had a few Skype conversations. Of course, I'm involved with Simple Year, uh, which Courtney founded. So we've had a lot to do with each other but have never actually met and it was so wonderful to just sit down we went out and had a an iced tea before the event and to just chat was brilliant and she is every bit as warm and kind and lovely as she sounds in her writing and on her blog but yeah then then we sat down at the bookstore and essentially these events where I kind of co-host with someone else is a, another way of getting into what slow simple living looks like and kind of trying to answer that question that so many people have had since I've been traveling around, is it really possible in a fast-paced world? So Courtney and I just kind of dive into that and dive into what motivates her and what got her started on the, the, the whole process of simplifying and what that looks like now and what she's learned about herself. And, you know, and of course I answer kind of the same questions. Excellent. So the recording actually took place outside, it did. so we need to just pre-warn you that it's not as going to be as crystal clear as a normal hostful or an interview over Skype. It is outside, so there is a little bit of, you know, what what kind of noise do you call it? Ambiance. I think background noise sure. is a good. <laughs> but there was kind of there was sort of a certain ambiance because why there was uh, I think it was some kind of arts month or. Uh, some festival that was happening and walking into the bookstore, we looked around and there was like 50 people sitting on the footpath and the sidewalk and the treat areas with easels painting streetscapes. Wait. And there was a jazz band playing, you know, just across the road. So it was very, very cool. It was such a cool vibe. Our producer uh, extraordinaire, Ryan, has has uh, tried to cut out as much background as, as post background noise as possible, but do 
keep that in mind. And look, it is a learning experience because we actually recorded a live podcast recording way back on Vancouver Island with Kate Flanders mm-hmm. that has unfortunately been gobbled up by the glitch. The, the glitch. The glitch. Yeah, the glitch that Just lives. disappeared from the hard drive somehow. I don't know what happened. Which is very, very upsetting to me actually because, yeah. A, Kate was the best person I could possibly hope to start the book tour off with and she was event number one and she was so brilliantly insightful in that that event at Boland's Books. So unfortunately, that one will only remain exclusive to the people who were there. Yeah, sorry about <laughs> that, folks. But it's for us to say, we are currently in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, as soon as it comes out, we're about to explore Savannah, and we've got a, a book signing in Savannah. Uh, yes, at Barnes and Noble in Savannah on the 11th of August. So you've got a couple of days if you're listening to this live. To Get to, to Savannah. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to drive from Los Angeles to Savannah, as you would. And then we're off to South Carolina. Yes. And I have an event there with Jessica Monan from One Part Podcast. She is actually going to interview me, but that episode will be available on this on our podcast in a few weeks' time. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to that. And then on the 16th of August, we are... We're both doing an event, another live podcast recording in Asheville. Yes, that's right, at Malaprops in Asheville in North Carolina. All right. So that's a brief rundown of the upcoming events, but head over to slowyourhome.com slash events for the full listings. Mm -hmm. There's a few there that have just recently been updated and... We're really looking forward to we're, – we're sort of halfway through the tour, aren't we? We are, actually. And we're going to finish it off strongly, albeit sometimes back-to-back events, which is going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it is. It is the grand experiment in finding Tilting. slowness yep, in life when life isn't slow or, uh, you know, simple. So this has been the longest intro ever. We apologise. And over to you. you guys for coming out tonight in this beautiful evening. Uh, I didn't realize we'd be outside so I'm sorry about that but it's actually beautiful to listen to the jazz and um, to sit here with Courtney. I actually first just want to say thank you to you Courtney for coming out because first of all we've known each other online for a long time. Uh, It's the first time I actually get to see you in the real flesh and I always get such a buzz when I come to events like this and people show up first of all but um, People show up wanting to know more about this idea of slowing down and simplifying because we look around us in, you know, the the world that we live in and everything is fast paced and that's the norm. It's normal for things to be hectic. It's normal for us to feel overwhelmed. We compete on how busy and, and tired and sleep deprived we are. And just the fact that you're here tonight wanting to hear a bit more about this idea of simplifying and slowing down means that um, I'm not alone in wanting to do that. And so for that, I I thank you. And I guess what we're going to do tonight, the way we're going to run things, is just to have a conversation about slow living, what it actually looks like in a real life, uh, and how you can begin to apply that to your own lives, uh, even if they're full, even if they're busy, even if you don't know where to begin. Uh, And one of the reasons I wanted to invite Courtney along is because she has this incredible ability to um, bring heart and soul to everything that she does. And that's the one thread, I think, that ties all of your work together. It's, um, you know, you and I have both started our journeys towards simplicity with decluttering, I guess, but have used that instead of as the goal to create just this, you know, aesthetically pleasing minimalist life, we've actually created a life of intention and, and heart. So I'd like to ask you, first of all, where did it begin for you? Where did this, this need or this desire to simplify come from? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for being here and for inviting me. Um, and thanks to all of you for showing up tonight. This is great. Uh, so for me, my simplicity journey started way back in 2006. It feels like a long, long time ago. Um, and I didn't do it 
on purpose at first. I didn't become enlightened and feel like my life would be better if I simplified it. I waited until I had a wake-up call um, with a diagnosis of MS. And it was at first something that was really scary and I didn't know what I was going to do. But then after much research, I discovered that stress is really bad for people with autoimmune conditions. And then on further reflection, realized it's pretty bad for everyone. That negative stress, that crazy, I'm so busy, I don't even know what just happened to my day. I'm just like pinballing back and forth and back and forth. And I decided to eliminate as much stress from my life as possible. And decluttering certainly was part of that. But not at first, because I didn't really think of my stuff as stressful or shopping as stressful. I thought that was reducing stress, like buying things made me feel better. Um, but as it turns out, my stuff was just this reminder of my debt and discontent. And that's kind of when I started noticing that all the changes I made were rooted in simplicity and really removing things um, from my life, including stuff and clutter. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, uh, it's interesting that so many people come to these, this change of slowing down and simplifying after a crisis, a crisis of health or a relationship or finance or uh, mental health. And that was my, my personal journey began uh, seven years ago when I was diagnosed with postnatal depression. But previous to that, my life was uh, the exact opposite of slow. It was overwhelmed, it was anxiety riddled, it was constantly busy, constantly striving, constantly looking for the next rung on the ladder of success. Because to me, that's what I thought I needed to do. I thought that I needed to create a life that from the outside looked like I had it all together. But the reality was I could look at my life and see that it, look, it looked good, but it didn't feel good. I was completely miserable. That discontent, that word that you used, is exactly how I felt. And when I was diagnosed with depression, I, I began seeing a psychiatrist every week for many months. And I remember sitting with her one day, complaining constantly about how busy I was, how stressed I was, how I never got a chance to enjoy my kids or my husband, or all of these wonderful things that we'd created in our lives because I was always busy doing, doing the next thing, doing the next thing. And she stopped and asked me the question that changed my life, not, not immediately, but it changed my life eventually. She said, have you ever considered doing less? And I was, I hadn't actually. <laughs> it was a foreign concept, doing less. And I, initially, I was offended by her suggestion because I thought she was saying, you couldn't do it all. You know, there's something wrong with you. You're deficient. You can't cope with the pace of modern life, so therefore go and sit in the corner. Um, did you get a sense of, of that when you first were faced with the, the notion that you had to slow down and simplify it? For did, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely frustrated and annoyed when people would suggest that I do yoga, for instance. <laughs> and I was like, yoga? What are you talking about? That's... Easy. <laughs> I've never done yoga before. And then, uh, but I felt like people were saying, you're, you're going to have to slow down because you're sick. Not, I'm going to slow down and be healthier than I ever was before. And how did you move past that? I mean, because I think it's tied to ego, isn't it? And identity and, and our sure. desire to to get all the things done. Yeah, well, I never wanted anyone to think that I was slowing down because that would somehow be this negative thing. And I felt like in the workplace, if people thought I was slowing down, they were gonna try to climb right over me and take all my business or do things that, of course, probably would never happen, but it's always running in the back of your head, like I'm gonna fall behind or people are gonna think I'm weak or whatever, and then add that whole uncertainty of maybe I'm not going to be able to walk in a year. So, yeah, that was for sure hard. Like, what was the first step you took? What was the first action you took? Yeah, the, the very first thing that I did was change my diet. Uh, I thought that might be the, the thing where I might notice the biggest difference just in researching and trying to figure out um, how to live well with MS. And it was never a doctor-recommended diet. It was just me saying, okay, I think in this reading, I might be better off without 
meat in my diet or without dairy in my diet. And I did a lot of challenges and experimenting. I did a raw diet for 30 days, which, I mean, I don't even care if that would have helped me. I, <laughs> I just couldn't. I was like, I need some hot soup. <laughs> uh, I need some cooked food. So it had to be something that was benefiting my health, but all, you know, not just physically, but mentally. So even now I play around with things and have reintroduced um, seafood, for instance, and other things and kind of test the waters. And if I'm not feeling well, I mix things up. But yeah, it all started with my diet. And I noticed I was really eliminating a lot of things. Um, and then the next thing, kind of most stressful thing for me was debt. Um, we were in, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars if you count our house. And it was just overwhelming, but I thought it was normal until then, because I went into debt when I was 18. Um, before I ever finished a year of college, I got my first credit card and like drinks were on me for <laughs> years. <laughs> so th yeah, I just always thought I would be in debt. And when I made this decision to eliminate stress, it was, okay, if we're gonna eliminate stress, let's do it. And debt was stressful, so it took us probably three years, but we eventually paid off all the consumer debt and then uh, sold our house. Um, didn't make a penny, but walked away free and clear and never felt better. Right. Describe how that felt. I mean, because that's, like, that's a big process that you had gone through yeah. from when you were diagnosed with MS to changing the way that you were eating and feeling and then debt. I mean, how did you feel as you were shedding those layers? Well, I felt excited because yeah. I knew we were going in the right direction. Uh, but every time before I would take the first step, I would feel like, oh my God, this is gonna take forever. Like, what am I doing? But as soon as I would take that first step, I'd think, all right, we're on the path. Yeah. And then it was, I felt light almost immediately, even though I knew we had years ahead of us, but just taking that first step felt good. And it gave me confidence to take other first steps. You were smart, though. You took small steps. Yeah, you didn't, I didn't. Yeah, you didn't try and sort of do the whole thing all at once. And I guess when you're tackling debt, you can't, you know, and built into that is that it needs to be a process. And I think that small steps, making changes, slowing down, simplifying, it's necessary to do that in small steps because otherwise I think we become overwhelmed at the process. So when I first discovered the, the notion of slowing down and decided that I wanted to be someone who slowed down and simplified and lived with all these benefits that I'd been reading about, I, I wanted to do it as quickly as possible. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to do it as, as good as possible. As, I, I wanted to be the best minimalist who ever existed and I wanted to do it yesterday. You know, I really had trouble letting go of this perfectionistic tendencies that I had. I'd been reading about simplifying and I'd been reading um, Zen Habits was the first blog that I discovered. And Leo writes about minimalism, but he also writes about mindfulness and meditation and health and changing our diet and all these wonderful things. And I was deep in the depths of the worst of my depression at this time. And I think had someone forced me to sit down and meditate, I would have exploded. Like I, that was not something that I could possibly have done. But what I could do was declutter. So as the perfectionistic overachieving person that I was at the time, I decided that we would declutter our two-car garage which was full of boxes from when we'd moved a couple of years previously. Never opened anything in the boxes, never needed anything in the boxes, uh, but obviously they were there and I wanted them to not be there. So I dragged my husband out one Saturday morning to our garage, I rolled the doors up and we started sorting through the contents of our boxes. And I thought, we'll declutter this in, in a weekend, we'll be, you know, two weeks and the house will be done, I'll be a minimalist, it'll be great. Because letting go is easy. Yeah, it's super easy, yeah. <laughs> and we started sorting through the, the stuff in the boxes, making piles, you know, that's what people tell you to do when you declutter, you make piles. So I made a keep pile, which is going to be very small, uh, and you know, a donation pile and a give to friends pile and a maybe pile and then a recycle pile. And we just emptied boxes into these piles for a few hours until we realized that the piles had all merged into one and we hadn't made any decisions. And we looked at each other and shrugged our shoulders and walked out of the garage, rolled the doors down and left it like that for a year. <laughs> and that's when I realized that I needed to go to the very 
other end of the spectrum in terms of the things I was trying to achieve. So I decluttered my purse instead. <laughs> and it took five minutes and it felt great. And I realized that that's the power of, of small changes. So when you started letting go of the physical clutter, what did that look like for you? I mean, were you more prepared to let go by that stage or not? I feel like I should be asking you questions where <laughs> you're visiting, but since it's your podcast, I'm going to let you ask me any questions. You um, yeah, I was ready to let go for sure. But if, at first it was just like little passes through the house and getting things that I never noticed before and getting them out of the house and then not even noticing they were gone and then feeling really good about that for a few months and doing it again. And we kept doing that until we had empty rooms in our house. Mm -hmm. And we, in the beginning, we were really mindful about, you know, donating things to the right place, selling things that we could to pay down debt. But eventually we just wanted it gone so that we could move on. And so I remember we would uh, get just piles of stuff, some stuff that I didn't didn't even really know what it was, like pieces of stuff. And we'd put it all in the driveway. We lived in uh, Cottonwood Heights and we'd put a, a, a listing on KSL, uh, like our local news classifieds online. And we'd say free stuff, have a picture of all the stuff and the pieces of stuff and put our address and we'd run in the house and like get down below the window, 15 minutes, gone, gone. So I would do that from the beginning next time. If I had to do it all over again, I would do that from the beginning. And we get caught up in that, where should our stuff go? And we want to be like the best minimalist, right? But the sooner we can let go of it, the more impact we can have in other ways. Right, exactly. No, I agree completely. Had I known how light I would have felt as I was letting go of this stuff from the beginning, I, I would have done it very differently. We, when we sold our house, um, we had a garage sale, but instead of putting any prices on things, we just told people everything was free. And they took it all, and it was fantastic. And I, I couldn't tell you anything that we actually let go of over those years, um, because I realized that none of it was important. And I think that that realization, I, I honestly don't think I could have got to that realization without going through the small steps and the you know, the wins and the, the realization. But it was that realization, as you said, where you gave stuff away or you put things in a box to see if you missed it and you never did. When you recognize that and you realize how much stuff surrounds you without you ever actually using it or paying attention to it or doing anything other than dusting it, that's a huge moment, I think. Yeah, because then you also understand that buying the stuff never had anything exactly. to do with the stuff. It was about that purchase process and that momentarily like kind of leaving my world for a minute and getting caught up in this shopping thing. But then you never remember why you bought it or why it's still there or after it leaves yeah. that it was ever there to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. And I think what I, I don't know about you, but as I shed physical possessions over a couple of years, and there was tens of thousands of things that we let go of in the end, I also started to shed layers of stories I'd told myself about who I was. You know, the, this identity of like the person who got a lot done, that was important to me for some reason. That was what success looked like. And as I, I started to shed layers of stuff, I, I began to shed those kind of stories. And I think it um, for me, it was very much tied to ego and what I wanted other people to think about. But the terrifying thing that came about at the same time was then the question of, okay, well, if I'm not my, my stuff, I'm not my outward success, who am I? That, was, that really was a, a scary question. Uh, did you come up against that during the process? I mean, I still do. Right. Like every day, do that whole who am I thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, but it's interesting how I have this major phobia of bugs, by the way. So if you see me like flipping out, it's because something touched my hair. I'm sorry. I can't let that go. <laughs> That's one story I'm going to carry with me forever. But yeah, I, I think I care way less now about what other people may think because I've realized that most people don't think about me at all after, I thought they did for a long time, but 
they don't. And that gave me permission to care a little bit less about doing more unconventional things or taking a different path. Uh, and even the people that do care or express their opinion that might not be along the lines of support, uh, I can, I can say thank you for your advice and move on where before that would paralyze me. And I'd think, how am I going to make them happy and also live my life the way I want to live it? And there was always this conflict. Mm -hmm. But now that is gone. Like right. That's definitely gone with the, the clutter and the stuff. Yeah. You spoke earlier, you just mentioned the word purpose at one point. How did you arrive at understanding what you wanted your life to look like? I mean, did you go through a process of discovering your own purpose or your, your reasons why or? I'm glad this isn't video. <laughs> like, yes, not right away. At first it was just, okay, how am I going to be healthy? How am I going to be there for my family? Which was funny question since I wasn't really all the way there for them before. Yeah. You know, even if we were spending time together, I was checking my email or checking my voicemail or thinking about work. So this purpose of wanting to be healthy for my family surprised me because I thought I was already doing that and I was going to lose that. But I wasn't even doing that all the way before. Um, so that for sure made a big difference because I was thinking it thinking of it in terms of, you know, this MS is going to progress. I'm not going to be able to do crazy hikes or go skiing or travel with my family. Um, but in reality, that whole time, I was ignoring them for the sake of, you know, getting my getting to inbox zero or yeah. whatever. Uh, so that that took a whole new meaning yeah. um, for me. And now it's not just having time. Like when I picked my daughter up from school, I thought I was showing up for her but I wasn't there for her. I barely noticed she was in the car. I barely noticed that I was in the car half the time. Um, so now it's not just the time, it's really being present and reminding myself if I get off track, because of course I still do, why, why did I make all this time and it's to show up? Mm. One of the things that I, I think people often ask me about when they're simplifying is they expected it to make everything feel better and easier almost straight away. You know, you adopt this simplicity mindset and solutions to your problems become apparent. But what so many people, and I certainly uh, went through this myself, they discovered that by simplifying, we actually become more aware of things that we'd been, you know, kind of stamping down, like, like that realization that you wanted to be there for your family, and then you recognize as you were stripping stuff away, you actually weren't fully there anyway. You know, why do you think it is that we, we go through the, this process of self-realization as we strip stuff away? Well, for me, it was because I had spent so much time creating distractions to remove myself from my life that once I started eliminating those distractions and I was there, I, I couldn't help but face it. Um, and there, there weren't those external distractions. And sometimes I'd try to find them. I'd be like, certainly I haven't seen every Instagram post today. <laughs> um, or, or whatever, I'd make myself busier at work. I mean, busyness was just as pervasive as clutter, I think, in, in just keeping myself distracted. But I, I said I was doing it in the name of, you know, making money for my family or keeping up or whatever it was. But really it was, this stuff is way too hard to think about. So I'm just gonna be busy over here for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think we're very adept at distracting ourselves yeah. away from things that are hard. Sure. That's why I found meditation so difficult too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not there now. I don't think you can get there, but I at least accept that sometimes it highlights things that are really tough. Sure. Uh, but it also gives us a space in which to experience it and expand or, or not. So I went through that, that same process of that realization that I thought I was living a particular way or I thought that I had these particular priorities at the center of my life, but it turns out I didn't. You know, had you asked me in 2014 what my priorities were in life, I would have said to you immediately it was my two kids and my husband and having some kind of positive impact on the world. Like, that's what I would have said. And then we went to Canada for Christmas 2014 and I picked up this little book 
at a, in a bookstore in Canada called 642 Tiny Things to Write About. Uh, and it was just a book of writing prompts that caught my eye. And I sat in the apartment that we were staying in, in Canada, and flipped through this book. And the first page that I saw randomly said, write your eulogy in three sentences. And that was not what I was expecting when I picked up that book. I thought it would be, you know, describe a flower or something like that. And I sat with this question of what would I want someone to say about me when I was gone? I was 31. I had not thought about my death at all. Problem, as I had been realizing that year, is that I hadn't been thinking about my life either and how I was living it. So I sat down and I wrote my eulogy. And I'd like to read it, if that's okay, now. Because it gets to the, the heart of uh, the importance, I think, of having this sense of why we're making these changes, of what we actually want life to look like. This is what I wrote. Quick to laugh, creative, compassionate, with a wicked sense of humour, Mum was never without a new plan or adventure on the horizon. She made one hell of an old-fashioned. She was spontaneous, loyal, introspective, and believed wholeheartedly that we all have a responsibility to leave the world a better place than we found it. Mum, we will miss you always. Thank you for our roots, but thank you even more for our wings. And I remember reading that back, saying, finally, this is my why. This is, this is what I want to be working towards. And that felt great for about a minute, because then the next question is, am I living that life now? If I kept going, would people say that about me? And the answer was no. And it, same thing, it was that, that was when I realized that where my time and energy was going, I knew it wasn't my priority, but it didn't matter because that's where my time and energy was going. So how, how did you, I guess, come to grips with that and start to wrestle with those more difficult things, like those, those big realizations, those, those, that recognition that you were distracting yourself away from the, the big stuff? Hmm. I mean, I think I'm, I think that's something that I still deal with all the time because I'm, I still feel tempted to distract, but now I catch myself much more quickly. And I think now that I have more time and I'm not doing as much of the, you know, multitasking and back-to-back -back appointments and people-pleasing that I'm not in a rush anymore. Um, so I can move through it uh, with less pressure to fix it right away. That was my other big thing, is I wanted to fix things right away. As soon as there was a problem, we got to fix this. Mm -hmm. But in fixing things so quickly, they kept reappearing and reappearing because I never figured out why they were happening in the first place. So I think it's really not being in a hurry and being okay with being a hot mess yeah. from time to time. A lot of times, actually. I like that you said that, though, because it doesn't... Going through the process that you've gone through over the past few years, if it doesn't make things perfect, does it? I mean, sometimes it feels the opposite. True, but it, it does make things easier to deal with in that if an emergency comes up or there's a conflict or something like that, there's plenty of space to manage it, and it's not a crisis. So I don't have as many emergencies or surprises as I used to. But of course, stuff comes up all the time. Yeah, creating that buffer. Yeah, margin. Yeah, that you can, I mean, I used to operate at about 110% capacity. So if something happened, like the kids did something like spill a drink or sleep in or, you know, anything, I had an argument with my husband or missed the train, that was a disaster. Whereas if what, what I discovered, that simplicity and slowing down gave me an extra 25%. So when things happen, I've still got room to expand. And that's really liberating, I think. And I don't know about you, but I certainly feel a lot more, a lot less reactive. Oh, well. yeah. Underreacting is yeah. my superpower, I think. <laughs> you can tell me something and I can just take it in without freaking out. Except for the guy that parked so close to my car tonight. I feel a little like overreacting yeah. about that. But I didn't. I haven't left a note yet. yet. <laughs> Night's young, but I'm thinking about it. Right. Well, but that, then you didn't overreact. That was Correct. a very intentional yeah. reaction. Which is another word that I think you use a, a lot, being intentional. And for me, intentionality, intentional living and mindfulness are, are kind of the same thing. It's just paying attention to what we do. How do you bring intention or mindfulness into your day 
um, even when things are busy, even when you feel like you're expanding into that margin. Yeah, well, for starters, uh, I have a morning routine that really shapes my entire day. Uh, and if I don't practice for a while, I notice almost, at least within a few days, that things are a little off. So I kind of center myself in the morning by doing things that I enjoy before doing things for other people or doing things that I have to do or I should do or I'm supposed to do. Yeah. But also just say, like literally saying to myself, stop for a minute or take a breath and just pausing. Like I think there's so much power in the pause yeah. and that's probably where I regather throughout the day intention, even when things feel like they're running away a little bit is just say, okay, pause. What's going to happen if we wait five minutes here and mm. see what's really happening. Yeah, I love the power of the pause. And that's having, having that space gives you the opportunity to do that. And I would think for you right now, while, where you're traveling and you're in airports and cars and hotels and dealing with the unexpected every day, you have to do that even more or? Yeah, I do. So um, I'm on a book tour for, I started on the 20th of June and we finish on the 16th of September and we Kind of my husband, my two kids, and I are traversing the country uh, for three months. And I was really anxious about it before we started. And then I realized that that's what I needed to do. I just needed to create just a small cornerstone of space, of slow, of pause in my day, regardless of what else is happening, and not overreact, not freak out, not get caught up in that, you know, that negative mindset that I used to spend my life in. And it's helped en enormously. And it, what it actually has helped with is um, adaptability, which I was never any good at. I was very rigid seven years ago. I did not like change. Now I'm literally the person who sold my house and gave away all my stuff and I don't know where we're gonna live. And I love it, <laughs> you know? And it's just that I think the power of, of space and asking the question, okay, what's actually happening here? What am I telling myself is happening here? which one's closer to the truth. <laughs> and usually it's, you know, it's the first one. Have you noticed a shift in your, um, like your headspace, your worldview, the way that you talk to yourself even as a result of this shift in, in simplicity? And... Yeah, I'm much more comfortable with uncertainty. Right. Uh, and I'm not all caught up in what happened yesterday or all worried about what is going to happen tomorrow or in five years or in 10 years. Uh, and I used to do that a lot, like have, like I have to do this by the time I'm this age or this by the time I'm this age, or I have to have this much money saved or all, all of that stuff really just kind of went by the wayside. And so while I do some planning, uh, I'm not a compulsive planner by any means. And when I try to go back to that, even if I try to plan like if I were to try to plan next week for work, for instance, and I've got appointments, a calendar. I mean, I, I have some things going on, but if I were to try to plan it out to the minute every day, by Monday, even before the week starts, I'll come down with a cold or be sick. Like right. my body will fight it immediately. And then I can't do any of the things that I planned. So, and now if I talk about that, my daughter will say, remember what happened that last time you tried to plan things? And so I'll be like, all right, bring it down. That's really interesting that you have a physical response. Literally. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to think about that a bit, actually. I really like that. Uh, now, I'd love to know if anyone has any questions about, because I, I feel like we could talk literally for hours about this stuff because there are so many elements to what, see, we have, exactly, <laughs> to what um, slow living looks like. And I think that the best way to be more specific is to find out what you would like to know about what slow living looks like or what simplicity actually looks like because so many people will say to me um, when I'm talking about this stuff well that's nice for you or that's lucky for you because it doesn't feel like it's relevant to a full and busy life and I think we've both just shown you that it is because we both still we both still work we both still have things going on we have periods in life where it is full and busy and it still applies so I has anyone got any questions about what this looks like? It's my favorite part. Um, I have a, so I have this thing happen at the end of my workday mm -hmm. where actually it doesn't matter how productive I've been during the day, that I get anxiety at the end of the day when I'm leaving, when I'm going home, 
when I'm driving home, I typically am rehearsing and trying to rehearse. To me. Yeah, so it's coming. That's not true. Um, but it, it's all about actually not having done as much as I wanted to do in the day. Right. That's what the anxiety is driven by, I think. That's what I, I'm trying to identify it that way. So and regardless of how productive you've been. I could be very productive. Mm -hmm. I, yesterday this happened, and I was very productive. I did a lot. Yeah, I think. Mm. I felt like I did a lot, at least. That's all that matters. And then I, I still had, you know, three or four things that I wanted to do that day. And so I felt like, darn, like yeah. I, didn't, I didn't get it done. And, and it, it, it just, it's sort of like an automatic trigger, right? So it just, I, I, don't, I may not even be thinking about that, but I know, or consciously thinking about it. But on the ride home, I feel my anxiety levels rising and I've become more attuned to them because I'm meditating a little bit or I'm trying to figure that out. So I'm wondering, like, are there any, uh, have you experienced that first? And then how to, I have, a, I have an unending list of things mm -hmm. that I'm doing and I, I want to manage them well, but I have an unrealistic expectation for how much I can do. And that drives this strange cycle of, of yeah. anxiety. Um, I think you just said it, it's the unrealistic expectation of what we're able to do in a day. And I had to recognize when um, I was doing that, which was all the time, you know, I'd have this idea about, let's say, slow living, yeah. as I mentioned, it was going to look a particular way and feel a particular way. And then it didn't, and that caused me stress. So I've started to realize that expectations kind of equate to suffering <laughs> because we can never quite match up to what our expectations are. It doesn't matter if we, if we, we have really big expectations or, or not, but I find that having a picture in your head of what it will look like when you're done can be really detrimental. So for me, I try and keep, um, keep things really manageable and I have a to-do list of three things a day, work and three things a day at home. And everything on top of that is gravy. And I, I feel like it's just a shift that that is very subtle, like really, sometimes I'll get the same amount of things done in a day anyway, but it's shifting and saying, okay, well, I've done those three things. I'm now choosing to do another thing and making a choice rather than, you know, expectation or, or having to makes a massive difference to the way that I view it. But I, I do, I, I really think that having either realistic expectations or learning how to let go of expectations altogether can really help with that. My husband was exactly the same though as you for many years. He would get on the train on the way home and he would work, work, work on the train. Even though he'd just done a 10 hour day, he'd work for two hours on the way home. And he would hit the mountains on the train and he would start to get anxious, not the other way around. And he realized that there was, he had no buffer either between his headspace for work and his headspace for home. And he always wanted to do his best in both. So he started adopting this practice where he created space. Half an hour before he got home, he would turn off all of his, his laptop, he would not be thinking about work at all, and he'd either meditate or listen to music. And he realized that um, even though there may be things left undone at work, they're always going to be. Uh, and it created this sense of spaciousness so that when he got home, and his, part of his anxiety was then wanting to be home for me and the kids and, you know, kind of showing up for us. But he was able to, to fully be there. It was like a transition stage. So... Yeah, I think that maybe focusing on um, how you want to feel maybe rather than the way you want it to look as well could be a, a different way of framing it. You've painted a picture of what underwhelming looks like and that's what it is. So if you let go of that and just say, okay, well, these are three solid things. And I mean, I'm not, I don't mean putting like make the bed on the list or anything like that. Um, proper tasks, you know, and then just say, okay, great, now what? And, and you can kind of come at it from a place of choice and, and being proactive rather than reactive. But I mean, I, I think it's a really valid question tied into this idea of what productivity looks like and efficiency and, you know, how efficient can we get, you know, really? I mean, it's like, yeah, I think that um, checking in with those expectations of yourself as well, I think is, is a good place to start. Do you have any? Yeah, I mean, I think just by saying it out loud, you clearly know what's going on. Yeah. And you you said like yesterday, you you just wanted to get those three or four other things done. But if you had accomplished those three or four things, you know there would have been three or four other things, right? But it might help you, if, like in the transition period, having like a running list of 
all the things so you can look at it and be like, yeah, I've got a lot to do, but here are the things I'm going to do today. And when I finish those things, maybe I'll go back to this list or maybe I'll go see a movie or take a long lunch or something like that. And the transition idea in the end of the day is so good having that, having some ritual that breaks the end of the day with the beginning of the evening. Um, so whatever that might be, if it's meditation or if it's doing 20 jumping jacks or whatever, but having that same ritual that you, that you do every night when you're done with work, just to say, I'm letting that shit go yeah. and then move on. It, and it gives you permission to do that. It gives you permission to say, okay, day done, we'll move on. Because otherwise I think we hold on to it and then we lay in bed and we think about all the things that we didn't get done and then we don't sleep and we wake up in the morning and all right, we're feeling anxious before we've even started. So I think if you can find a way of drawing a line in the sand at the end of the day and saying, okay, I, some days you'll say nailed it and other days you won't. And I think that's life though. I mean, I think that some days are diamonds and some days are definitely not. And I think you can procrastinate anxiety to a certain yep. extent, you know, if it's not uh, something that's really chronic, but it's the situational that you can say, I'm going to like Scarlett O'Hara this and think about it tomorrow. So I'll put anxiety, I'll be anxious about this tomorrow and put that right on your list for the next day. <laughs> and by the next day, you're not going to remember why you were so worked up about it. Yeah. You have to really trick yourself. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Okay. Yeah, um, so kind of two questions. One, uh, one is that I'm just curious, like of the things for both of you, maybe like a couple of things that you either, like, that you let go that you no longer have and you're like, whether that's object, I mean, you've obviously talked about a lot about objects, but like for practices or activities or even people that you no longer, in terms of like the simplifying, slowing down, what are some things that you let go? And then my second question, I'm, um, I'm kind of a people pleaser. So we're kind of a hot mess. <laughs> it's like, um, but I, I just... And so for me, the slowing, what I end up doing is filling my day with things uh, for other people. But I, I, I really resonate with what you said, that I think they care more than they do. And, um, and so I wanted to kind of get your con any advice on term in terms of you have encountered that in your experience, like with relationships, how you've obviously probably had to cut back a little bit in order to slow down and how you've done that. So, Well, I've done a lot of that, of letting go of... Um, full people completely that, you know, we weren't really friends or we weren't, uh, you know, the time that we spent together wasn't helpful for either one of us, but we kept in it because we want to make each other happy. But also with some people that demanded more of me than I was able to give anymore or willing to give, I stopped I guess I just finally said, I have to be enough for them just like this and not because of what I do for them, but because of who I am. And so if I don't do any of those things for them anymore and they don't love me as a result, that's okay with me. Uh, I really had to come to terms with that. I couldn't keep proving myself by doing things for other people because that's what I was doing when I don't really expect that of people, of my close friends and family. Um, nobody has to do anything for me to, to gain my love. Sometimes I ask for favors or people do do things for me, which is very nice and likewise, but that can't be the basis of the relationship. And it could just be simple stuff like day-to-day -day stuff where you're saying, you know, you're filling your day, helping everyone out. For me, it got to a point where I just had to start carving out like big lots of time just to be alone and not to justify that and not to have to say, like make up stories like, oh, I'm actually very busy doing this, so I can't do this with you. Now I just say, I am done peopling this week, so can't, and people get it and they resonate with it and they, it gives them permission to kind of own their, their capacity for being around other people as well and doing things for other people. So yeah, just, I had to stop proving myself think is what it really came down to. Yeah, I think I've discovered a lot more about what makes me tick as well through this whole process, obviously. But I've discovered just how much alone time I need. Like I'm a super introverted person. And having the language to describe that and to no longer feel like there was something wrong with me was really helpful as well. Because it, one of the things that I, I had to let go of, as you asked, was comparison and to other people. 
and I would compare myself to what I knew of other people, which is not much really. We know a lot of ourselves, we know everything about ourselves, we know very little about other people, but I would constantly compare myself to, myself to others and I had to let go of that and I continue to have to let go of that, like that's an ongoing process. But I would compare what I would see of other people and how they would give their time or how that they were constantly energetic and constantly giving and constantly people pleasing when the reality is I have no idea what, what goes on for them. And it was irrelevant anyway, because what I needed was some time alone. That was actually incredibly important to me. And even if it's only five or 10 minutes a day, like I need that time. So I need like five that. or 10 hours. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in an ideal world, yes. And I'm talking about it at the moment. Yeah. I get five or 10 minutes, usually in the bathroom when the kids are asleep. Uh, yeah, so I think comparison was one of the big things I let go of. But the other thing that I am still very much in the process of letting go of is, is negative self-talk. That was probably the most toxic thing that was going on for me uh, over those years. It was the constantly awful voice in my head that was telling me why I wasn't good enough, why I didn't deserve time to meditate, why I didn't deserve my family, why I didn't deserve all of these things. And learning to acknowledge that and see her in my head and then stick her in a box and ignore her has been so powerful. And that's got nothing to do with stuff. It's got nothing to do with productivity. It's got nothing to do with anything other than understanding that there was a, like a really nasty voice in my head and I didn't need to listen to it. And the flow on effect of that has been phenomenal. You know, I no longer feel like I have to be a martyr about things because I'm a people pleaser. That's, that was the way I used to operate and I would run myself into the ground in order to, you know, to do what I thought I needed to do because there was this voice telling me that I didn't deserve downtime, I don't deserve quiet, I don't deserve peace or happiness or contentment because there's those people that I need to help. I wasn't doing a very good job of that when I was beating myself up constantly. So while you know, I went through a lot of changes outwardly in terms of our house and that kind of stuff, it was that was the biggest shift for me, figuring all that stuff out and, and continuing to negotiate with it. And haven't you noticed that like your best relationships became better and then your kind of relationships yeah. just fell away yep. yeah without a lot of conflict or confrontation it just you redirect your energy exactly and I didn't have any confrontation there was never a moment where someone really lost it at me because I had changed I mean, maybe they were a bit miffed I don't know but um, yeah the good ones got better um, and more fulfilling and deeper, like anything. I feel like once you start to put time and presence and energy into things that are important, they get, and I, when I say time, I don't necessarily mean more time. I just mean turning up when you're with someone um, and be really present and really listen and really care. And those relationships are deeper and, and better. I mean, I might spend 15 minutes playing with my kids, but that's all I'm doing. And they know, and I know that that's all I'm doing. And it feels like so much more than three hours of just sitting next to them on the lounge while I'm flicking through my phone and they're watching TV. Like there's just so much depth that occurs in those important relationships when we, when we show up. And I didn't expect that. When I started decluttering my house, I did not expect my relationships to change. Um, I think that should just about do it. I think we were meant to wrap up at eight. So that was wonderful. Guys, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, thank you. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.